Hello, you are listening to Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Modern Art in the Maghreb lecture series and was recorded via Zoom on the 27th of April, 2023. podcast, Sheda Aisha Khemez, artist, curator, poet, and PhD candidate in art history at the University of Texas at Austin, presents Performing Place-Based Knowledge, The Case of Ocean. To see related images, please visit our website, www.themagrebpodcast.com. Hi, my name is Shayda. It's wonderful to be in your midst today and, and thank you so much for having me. My presentation is titled Performing Place-Based Knowledge, the Case of Ausham. And let me go ahead and share my screen. Today I'll present a contextual analysis of the exhibition histories of the group Ausham, examining how their work was received by artists and critics in Algeria. I will also consider the historical and political context out of which Oshem emerged, and we'll look at how their democratizing ethos and aesthetic sensibility, which was rooted in indigenous visual forms, influenced the decolonizing aesthetics in the 1960s Algeria. Drawing on the theoretical insights of contemporary indigenous studies or indigenous methodologies, I wish to offer a critical and theoretically informed analysis of Oshem's work, situating it within broader debates around indigenous knowledge, placemaking, and politics of place. So this is still a work in progress from my dissertation, and I've not yet begun my fieldwork. As a result, my primary sources for this presentation will be limited to published interviews with the artists, exhibition catalogues, as well as artists' own writings and those of their close circle of friends and supporters. I'm very excited for my own interviews coming in September. So let's begin, shall we? In March 1967, the galleries housed at the National Union of Plastic Arts on 7th Pastor Avenue, Algiers, bore witness to the emergence of an aesthetic revolution boldly set in motion by the artist group Oshem. During the inaugural exhibition of the group, entitled Oshem One, Boylem Tatish, a renowned Algerian zona virtuoso, was heard in the polyphonic company of his troupe of Tibiblet players. Tatish played a melody in front of each work displayed in the exhibition and continued to invite passersby on the street to join the celebration. It was an exceptional inauguration, recalls Oshem artist Duny Martinez. Oshemites were in attendance with each one wearing what resembled a tutelary amulet that had been crafted by Martinez from a piece of leather folded into a triangle shape embossed with the initials of Oshem. Tucked inside was a list of each member's name. At one point after Tatish's repertoire had concluded, someone climbed atop a stool and began reading aloud the group's manifesto. The manifesto was signed by nine artists, notably including Shukri Mesli, Bayam Heddin, Doni Martinez and Mustafa Adane, and it comprised a provocative reclamation of Amazi signs. The late 1960s signified the beginning of modern art in the newly independent Algeria. On the heels of independence, the nation set about tackling the paramount issue at hand, forming a unique Algerian identity. This moment was largely fueled by the desire to create a distinct national culture. So in a sense, nation-building projects were intertwined with visual and aesthetic projects. 
And although this was a new era for the nation, Washamartas were telling us that their art was in fact born thousands of years ago. Their manifesto made a compelling case that the geometric abstraction that emerged in modern Algerian art was not all that new, but had been present in the cave paintings across the Sahara Desert for millennia. These visual forms, or similar visual forms, also existed in the etch designs on the skin of their Amazigh kin in forms of tattoos, as well as in the painted designs inside the houses in Kabylia and on various ceramic objects across the region, all of which I will shortly discuss. In this presentation, I will do two things. First, I will define what I mean by the work of Osham as a performance of place-based knowledge. Second, I will show how these indigenous knowledge and visual forms from the Sahara and elsewhere from tattoos to surface design, when mobilized in Osham's work, have become integral to the formation of what we call artistic modernism in post-colonial Algeria. As evidenced in their manifesto, the spirit of Osham was forged primarily through connections. Connections that are translocal, transcultural, trans-Saharan, transmediterranean, transcontinental, but also beyond time transtemporal, if there's a word like that, serving as the most critical emblem of such interchanges could be the region of Sahara. There is a noteworthy double gesture in the words of Oshamites that bears mentioning here. Osham has a double meaning in this manifesto. Its bold opening line proposes that Osham, Osham or tattoo, the ancient form of body art practiced among the Amazi, finds its roots in the prehistoric art of the Sahara. The artist group Osham, too, is rooted in the same place. This suggests that the relationship between art and land was a crucial question Oshamites were reckoning with, yet a question so far underattended. By drawing this connection between the practice of tattooing and the prehistoric art of the Sahara, the artists highlight the rich and complex history of visual forms that are grounded in the land itself. And land is where I now turn. Tassili Najer, which means the Plateau of Ajer peoples, is a site that derives its name from its indigenous population, thereby indelibly imprinting people into place, bodies into land. In the Saharan context, the boundaries between the two often become blurred, a topic I explore in another chapter of my dissertation. But as a brief example now, Tuareg cosmology regards every element of the natural world, from rocks to bodies of water, as capable of speaking through movement and change. A rock may not have a tongue, but it speaks through erosion, eventually forming the sand that covers the desert landscape. In the vast expanse of the Saharan plains, human and non-human forms of communication thus seamlessly coalesce into a single system of expression. As a common Tuareg adage attests, I quote, language is existence, but existence is also a language. The American anthropologist Keith Basso has similarly argued that even in seeming stillness, places appear to be speaking, and then goes on to note, I quote, as natural reflectors that return awareness to the source from which it springs, places also provide points from which to look out on life, to grasp one position in the order of things, to contemplate events from somewhere in particular. Human constructions par excellence, places consist in what gets made of them, in anything and everything they are taken to be. And their disembodied voices, imminent though inaudible, are merely those of people speaking silently to themselves. End quote. 
In thinking through Basso's poetic observation here, I invite you to rethink land as a conduit of knowledge. Along similar lines, Mishuana Goman, an indigenous feminist scholar from this side of the Atlantic, enjoins us to consider land as a meaning-making process rather than an object that is claimed or that can be claimed. In other words, land is not simply a space to occupy, own, or at times labor, but a living, breathing social entity that is fundamental to the formation and continuation of indigenous cultural practices. This viewpoint is further reinforced by yet another ancient Tuareg proverb that claims solid rock was the paper of the ancients. The first book in mankind's hands was rock. And it's in this vein that drawing on the rock art of Tassili, Osham's work became a site of performance of their knowledge of that particular place. Now, the term land, as Gorman has pointed out, is frequently conflated with a myriad of adjacent but not entirely commensurate concepts such as territory, landscape, geography, location, home and property. Land, however, is not an inert backdrop against which history happens to accumulate, but rather a site of continual and reciprocal human interaction and creation. Determined by neither proprietorship nor stewardship, Indigenous people's relation to land, in fact, hinges upon co-creating the world within it and with it. And this is how places get made. In a great many Indigenous conceptions, then, land is a little more than a storied entity that had breathed life into ancestral narratives, creation stories and cosmologies, but also a collaborator that helps to substantiate visions of a future. Placemaking then becomes a form of self-making, which in turn contributes to community-making. And this is how I aim to articulate Osham's underlying philosophy and inner workings, which may not be immediately apparent from their manifesto. Keeping all of these in mind, in the second part, I intend to highlight Osham's critical role in the development of the new Algerian art. And for that, I briefly turn to the nation's art during French occupation. Easel painting, a widely practiced genre in post-colonial Algeria, came to be recognized as a distinct art form only towards the end of the 19th century. It was in fact introduced by European Orientalists, who flocked to the country in numbers far surpassed those who ventured to other Maghrebian locales for inspiration. At the turn of the 20th century, Algeria was an Orientalist hotspot. In 1907, the Villa Abdelatif, also known as Maison des Artistes, was inaugurated in Algiers by the French governor Jeannard, and similar ateliers soon sprang up in other cities. But these places were for European painters only. During the colonial period, easel painting became a thriving genre under the Orientalist school, and it was widely practiced in the country's fine art academies including the École de Beaux-Arts, which was established in Algiers in 1881, and later in Oran and Constantine in the 1930s. However, Algerian natives were not allowed to enroll in colonial academies until the 1920s, but there were restricted specific fields of study, such as indigenous or Islamic art. And meanwhile, a separate path of art education existed for European students, who were exclusively reserved the study of sculpture and painting. Before the 1950s, before the war, the Algerian artistic realm was entirely under the sway of French colonists. 
When Algeria gained independence from the colonial rule in 1962, much of the leading creative activity shifted to the UNAP, as I mentioned before, the National Union of Plastic Arts. UNAP was, and still is, though under a different name, National Union of Cultural Arts, a state-subsidized organization instituted in 1963 by Algerian artists, the bulk of whom, including the likes of Mesli of Ausham, had returned to independent Algeria after having studied in Paris. UNAP artists were deeply influenced by two intertwined discourses that were pivotal to the period in question, nationalism and anti-colonialism. In this lecture, I will attend to the latter in order to engage the discursive and political histories of artistic modernism. Therefore, I want to allude to what artist and art historian Chiko Kekewogulu termed post-colonial modernism. Quote, it is impossible to develop a historical perspective on modern and contemporary African art of the 20th century and beyond without the sort of close examination of the political, discursive and artistic transactions and translations that brought modern art from the margins of cultural practice during colonial period to the very center of debates about African artistic subjectivity and cultural identity in the years after the attainment of political sovereignty, end of quote. Put simply, Okeke Agulu argues that modernism, whether in Europe or certainly elsewhere, because modernity was experienced everywhere around the globe, is often seen as an aesthetic effect solely of Western social and cultural modernity. He therefore proposes using the term post-colonial modernism to describe the art of Africa roughly from the 1960s onwards. The term post-colonial, I hasten to add, and you will also know, does not in reality mark colonialism's bitter end. That's the topic of another talk, but rather highlights the artistic, cultural and political demands shaped by colonial power relations. So Okeke Ogulu's term is useful and instructive for me to articulate the tie between the formations of aesthetic modernism and decolonizing projects in Africa at the time. In a sense, the aesthetics were formulated in a degree of proximity to the nation state and to independence. My work in general situates Osham in this critical juncture of modernity and indigeneity, of course understood as a place and knowledge-based concept as opposed to a blood-based concept. I treat Osham's work not only as a decolonizing project, but also one that is indigenizing, meaning inscribing the indigenous forms onto the new national art, new national culture of the post-colonial period. Making modernity in the newly independent Algeria saw a surge of artistic expression, both domestically and within the broader diaspora in Europe. This dynamic momentum embraced a wealth of mixed pictorial acts and artistic experiments with Amazigh symbols seamlessly coexisting with the Arabic alphabet and abstracted landscape and figuration. However, according to art historian Nureddin Belhashemi, the paintings of two Asham co-founders Mesli and Martinez stood out distinctively. Artist Ali Silem also notes this difference in stating, quote, in the 1960s, the prevailing winds of society accepted nothing but Arabism. No discordant voice was to disturb the specific Arabization carried out by the FLN Sussars. Nothing escaped their brutal ignorance. Neither the school, nor the culture, nor the urban environment. It is in this context that Osham arrives to put his grain of sand in the cogs oiled by the single party. The notions of identity and authenticity that they advocate are far from the original ideal recommended by the official authorities, who insist that Arabic is the only truth. End of quote. 
Aksham, as I introduced earlier, appeared as a collective in the Algerian art circuits towards the end of the 1960s with their inaugural exhibition. The exhibitor constituted the signatories of Osham's manifesto, some of whom were relatively unknown at the time, while others such as Mesler and Bayer had already gained visibility. And in the case of Bayer, I'll get to that even fame in Parisian art circuits in the 1950s, in 40s. When asked about the initial reception of Osham, Mesler's response was pithy yet telling. I quote, terrible. In fact, the fallout that the group experienced in the aftermath of this exhibition not only resulted in decades-long acrimony within the Algerian artistic sphere, but also had professional repercussions for some of the artists and supporters involved. For instance, Mesli and Bachayel were expelled from the UNAB in 1978. The severity of the events that unfolded on the vernissage of Osham 1 at the UNAB exhibition hall paints Mesli's remark as more than a mere hyperbole. The exhibition was marred in a brutal raid by violent protesters armed with sticks, consisting not only of a few disgruntled members of the public, but also UNAP's own artists. The raiders put on a ruthless spectacle, tearing down posters, destroying paintings, pouring beer and spitting on the reliefs, all the while filling the room with insults and rage, calling the art reactionary, petit bourgeois and counter-revolutionary. The night ended with the evacuation of the hall by military forces to ensure the safety of the artists and some of the foreign diplomats who were also in attendance. Years later, during a symposium in 2014, Silam remarked that painters Mohammed Esaikam, Mohammed Tamam, and Ismail Samson were amongst the most fervent supporters of this violent raid, and that the involvement of the Union artists, so-called colleagues of Osham, in such antagonism and outrageous malice was at best, quote, unexpected and astounding. Also in attendance was Algerian writer Nureddin Thadi, who later recounted the scandalous affair as follows, quote, I was stunned to see Saikam, this painter who has left such a mark on Algeria, pouring a bottle of beer over the paintings of Martinez or the paintings of Mesli, end quote. So I am an artist myself. And as artists, many of us can hardly imagine destroying the work of another artist, despite the ideological, philosophical, or ethical chasms that might exist between us. I dwell on these unsettling and cutthroat contratemps because they prelude, in more ways than one, the events that took place a little less than two decades later in the 1980s, leading up to what is now known as the Berber Spring, which, again, I don't have time to go into detail here, but looking back, the acrimonious air that hung over the artistic circuits, particularly the unbridled antagonism towards the use of Amazi cultural symbols, was perhaps the first indication of the strife that was to come, yet the seeds also of the pursuit of self-determination and resistance. This juncture, therefore, serves as a crucial locus for examining Amazi sovereignty, as I do elsewhere in my dissertation. Turning again to Osham 1, after its histrionic vernissage, the exhibition was given a second chance to be displayed to the public two months later in May, this time at the FLN Cultural Centre in Boleda. This city, with its rich Amazigh heritage, had predominantly become Arabized, but still possessed pockets of Kabyle-speaking communities. This new iteration of the exhibition, which allowed for a more favorable public reception, marked the actual first one of the three exhibitions in the relatively short lifespan of the collective between 1967 
and 73. Both posters for Ocean One, designed by Martinez, featured the headline, Avant-garde Pictoire La Jayenne. It was due to this persistent self-attribution of an avant-garde status that the group continued to provoke a heated critique from Algerian modernist painters, such as <clears throat> Isaacema and Hadda, who perhaps subscribe to a different conception of avant-garde. The significance of Osham's modernist innovations was clearly illustrated in their manifesto, which tried to construct sentence by sentence in my dissertation. Simultaneously, the group sought to subvert the narrow specializations in art making and instead prioritize an approach that valued above all collaboration and the joint creation of poems, paintings, and other works. They engaged in collective walks, discussions with the public, writing, painting, and exhibiting together. I argue that in addition to their political stance against the aesthetic status quo, it was this crucial attention Osham paid to process that marked the group's contribution to the making of Algerian modernity. Silam identifies the collaborative ethos of Osham as a type of overturning of roles. Quote, the painters write, the poets paint, the painters photograph or make bas-reliefs, end of quote. The group, moreover, not only engaged in cross-creative experimentations, but also attempted to create a new relationship between the artist, the art, and the public, aiming to bridge the proverbial gap in between. Yet, to the end, they organized workshops and gatherings in public landmarks, unusual to the bourgeoisie, yet familiar to everyday Algerians, such as the Museum of Sid al-Kabir in Bleda and the Fount of Nana Aisha in Algiers. Indeed, the rejection of individualistic formalism by Ausham could be seen as a deliberate challenge to the conception of the artist as a solitary, exceptional figure much celebrated in the European imaginary. The writing of a manifesto, however, while not necessarily at odds with this rejection, could be seen as a modernist gesture in itself. This precarious footing places them on a formidable tightrope teetering between embracing and rejecting aspects of European modernism while asserting their own distinct position within it. It might have been the group's willingness to embrace contradictions that contributed to the contempt they faced. As previously discussed, Osham's detractors in the artistic domain were already plentiful, yet the group's efforts to render art accessible to the public continue to draw increasing criticism. Their adoption of the Tifanar alphabet as a plastic form earned them the derogatory label of Berberist, a politically charged term of the era that stigmatized the Amazi as separatists and hostile to national unity. In the artistic circuits, the group's use of popular references and commonplace materials such as mats, mops and bandiers, drums, resulted in heated debates over the topic of populism. One prominent Algerian modernist, Khadda, uh, a leading figure in the School of the Sign in the 1960s, accused Osham of demagoguery and dismissed their popularity as, quote, a fleeting interest and scandal. Other artists in the UNAP attacked Osham's tropes of appropriation, describing their sensibility as inauthentic. In addition, while some commentators have attempted to classify Osham largely due to their use of affordable materials as art povera, Others have labeled them as a continuation of lyrical abstraction or even a tribute to surrealism. There were in fact neither of these. If anything, Osham's meant liberation, not only from the culture of colonialism of their lingering past, but also from the sweeping nationalist patriotism of their present. 
Against all odds, however, Osham was successful in garnering the support of the public. As Mesley observed, quote, we had everyone on our back, the conservatives and communists. It was our liberatory aspect that was supposed to scare people away, end of quote. The conflicts in opinion among UNAP artists became so frequent and at times so violent, as I've discussed, that the union had to separate into divergent provisions. The group of 35 painters was formed by artists who sought to distance themselves from the UNAP influence. Without a doubt, divergent approaches to national art, of course, abounded in the newly sovereign Algeria. And as you can see, all of these debates on the national art of Algeria hardly yielded a one-size-fits-all solution after independence. For Oshamites and other abstract artists like Hatta, abstraction could have provided one possible answer, but of course not the answer. And within this field of abstraction, too, was differences in opinion. Amidst these charged debates from all quarters, Osham turned to the most familiar source, the signs and symbols of their motherland. As such, the idea of art rooted deeply in the land became an indispensable aspect of Osham's aesthetic, which centered around reinventing, reimagining, and making anew the ancestral past. The titular reference of the group is inspired by the ancient practice of tattooing. The choice of this particular name by the way, they floated the idea of being called sorcerers before they decided on the Osham, again, to kind of indicate their tendency towards mysticism. The choice of this particular name was driven by the artist's perception of tattoos as indelible marks that serve as a form of socially determined writing. In the artist's view, Amazi tattoos serve to codify cultural identity and may even offer immunity and resistance against multiple aggressors throughout history and even now. This led to Oshamites to undertake their emblematic search for a chronological primacy, which in turn famously gave rise to their assertion. Osham was born thousands of years ago on the walls of a cave in the Tuscany Mountains. Osham's embrace of the land and its indigenous art forms was not just a means of modern artistic expression, but a bold departure from the stranglehold of the Paris school in Algeria and a challenge to the hegemonic conception of Euro-modernity. Osham then proved to be a means of interpreting through appropriation and giving new forms, new artistic expressions to millennial signs. And it was not just signs that were of importance to Osham's aesthetic. In their return to local forms and materials, they discovered the vivacity of color in Amazon material culture. Locally produced objects such as pottery from Kabylia featured striking reds, blacks, and ochre yellows that inspired Oshamites. One example of this influence is Mesley's paintings that showcase his adept use of red. Mesley's prominent use of this color would continue to evolve over time. In fact, his so-called red period was so salient that the artist was at one time nicknamed Mesley the Red. His works from the late 1980s to 1999, often simply titled Composition, exemplifies Osham's broader approach to color. These compositions, which mostly feature Amazi-inspired motifs such as triangles, lozenges, lines, and rosettes, placed inside a checkerboard outline that surrounds a female nude, serve as an exceptional embodiment of Osham's ideas articulated much earlier in the Group 1967 manifesto. I present this side-by-side -side comparison here to also demonstrate how Mesley's approach to abstraction evolved. 
His prior gestural technique of abstraction with loose brushwork began in the 80s to yield to a blend of stylized figuration in tandem with highly geometric abstract motifs rendered in tight and precise brushwork. It is the signature style that would come to define the rest of Mesley's career. Similarly, another example of Ashram's approach to color would be that of Martinez's. His inspiration for color came from the interiors of houses in Kabilia, decorated with repeated geometric patterns and saturated reds, yellows, oranges, and greens. Now I will not dwell on Martinez's work here. I think Cynthia Becker does that rather wonderfully, but I will touch on Baya Mahdeen, whose name is a pseudonym for her real name, Fatma Haddad. She was the sole woman artist of the group. And despite being one of the co-signees of the manifesto, her involvement in Osham still remains something of a mystery. Bayer was lionized by the Surrealists, mostly due to Breton, who claimed to have quote-unquote discovered her work and dubbed her the Queen of Surrealists. Bayer's dazzling polychromatic paintings were debuted in July 1947 in a Surrealist group exhibition at Galerie Mec in Paris. And again, in November of the same year, she had a solo exhibition at the same gallery. The following year, she was featured in the French edition of Vogue magazine, and her work attained as a result much success among the Parisian elite. At the age of just 16, she spent a month in Picasso's studio in France, during which time she experimented with ceramics. And all of these occurred 20 years before her involvement in Ashem. She had this enormous fame in Paris at a very young age and came to be known for a bold use of colors and symbols. Despite the widespread admiration that Bayer received, there has been a problematic tendency in mid-century literature to infantilize and fetishize her work. This is, of course, reflective of a larger trend in which the art of Maghrebine women artists often view through a primitivizing lens. Bayer's work drew on her Amazi cultural environment, and she refused to be swayed by the allure of Western modes of image-making. Despite her close proximity to Parisian elite circuits, she tried to resist being co-opted. In fact, she once claimed in an interview, seeming amused, that it was the French artist who took her signature colors. She said, I quote, I do not like borrowing. My impression is that others have borrowed my colors. My gender and turquoise are buyers' colors. They have been in my painting from the very beginning. I was inspired by the vibrant colors worn by the women of Kabylia. End of quote. Indeed, these brilliant turquoise and magenta hues that populate Bayer's paintings stemmed from the colors of Kabyle women's traditional garbs, celebrated by Western modernists for the originality of her use of color and subject matter, which did not derive from any Western influence in their opinion. Her works were conversely romanticized, othered, and relegated to the realm of naive art. Bayer's use of repeated symbols, such as circles, crosses, eye motifs, which could be interpreted as talismans, along with the incorporation of tattoo designs on the faces of her female figures, are some of the ways the artist performed her knowledge of place, in my consideration. While her style is distinct from those of other Osham artists, Bayer's aesthetic sensibility, which she termed Bayerism, is grounded in the same philosophy that underpinned the collective, a philosophy that yokes together land, people, and art. Although she was somewhat of a mystery figure in the group, her works are still performative of place-based knowledge. This makes her a bona fide Oshamite, if you ask me, despite her distinctive approach and enigmatic role in the group. 
In their popular references, Osham bridged the gap between artists and the masses. Their work was meant neither for the academy nor an artistic elite, but for the everyday people. Yet hardly do they send a clear message to the public. Some might argue that this is because the Osham style is somewhat cryptic, due in large part to the popular symbolism having undergone innovative aesthetic treatments. This assessment would be correct. These treatments often result in ancient ideograms presented in visually complex configurations, making them challenging to interpret for indigenous observers. Yet at the same time, they're easily recognizable to them as the emblems of a shared ancestral memory. So this is both familiar and entirely new. And such is the case that renders Osham's effort more than just a revitalization of indigenous forms, but rather a radical transformation of them. By exploiting appropriation as a visual act, Oshamais neither rejected what was deemed mimicry, namely European modes of image making, such as oil paintings on canvas, nor what was highly marginalized, such as the popular arts of their homeland, like pottery. By borrowing from both systems to equal effect, their liberatory strategy consisted of reappropriating both, thereby creating a third autonomous artistic territory. And I analyzed their work from the context of this unique territory. The realm of Amazi tattooing and other forms of art encompass a rich and complex graphic landscape steeped in signs and symbols. Allegorical, ritualistic, and at times cryptic configurations were of much importance to the sign making of Asham. Their pictorial language, characterized by the use of vibrant hues, earthy tones, and black pigment, along with materials such as henna and clay, and themes drawn from ancestral and mythological sources, have inspired several subsequent revivals in ancient cultural practices. Even after several decades, the influence of Osham and Jews in contemporary Algerian art. In 2014, Silam observed that exhibitions claiming to embody the spirit of Osham were still a common occurrence in Algeria. On May 2012, Mustafa Adane of Osham penned a new manifesto titled Osham II. In it, Adane affirmed that the Osham aesthetic, with its emphasis on indigenous symbols and popular arts, continues to inform and shape contemporary artistic expression, adding, I quote, the Osham manifesto underlined the historical and cultural continuity of a people that has become a nation. The future of a country, of a nation, exists only through its history, its culture, which is a vital element for its future. Osham is neither a manual of contemporary aesthetics, nor a shortcut of Algerian history and prehistory. The conclusion of the manifesto remains relevant. It engages artists with the culture of our country. It is still alive, as in its signs. End quote. The impact of Osham's appropriation of ancestral signs and symbols were in fact so potent that despite the early discourses of a new national art fizzling out, the dominant theme in Algerian painting for decades was still representations of cultural heritage, authenticity, and memory. Although there has been no documented evidence of attempts by emerging artists to officially revive Osham in the 21st century, the anecdotes above demonstrate the point. Despite the temporal distance between our now and their now, Oshamites succeeded in confounding this interspace through the profound invocation of ancestral science. They wrought havoc upon the very fabric of time itself, and in so doing broke out of a linear history. In closing, the fact remains that Osham signifies far more than a mere revitalization of indigenous knowledge and visual forms. 
The resurgence of Amazigh signs and symbols and colors in the work of Osham is indeed undeniable. However, I want to revisit here the opening statement of their manifesto, which proclaimed that according to the fluctuations of history, certain indigenous practices have been relegated to the shadows, obscured within a multitude of clandestine spaces. Such seeming resurgence then cannot be accurately regarded as a resumption, since the term itself implies a termination. Rather, it is the following. Amazigh forms have never actually disappeared, despite the beastly hammer of colonialism that for centuries trampled upon local art. Amazigh forms instead found a new expression in the work of Ausham, which was paradoxically born thousands of years ago. In Ausham's work, then, resurgence indicated a temporal unboundedness, a coming loose inside of this construct we call time, and thus defied the constraints of history. Osham was inscribed onto the bodies of Amazigh kinfolk. Osham shaped the mid-century discourse on post-colonial modernity. Osham outraged some and inspired others. Today, Osham continues to inspire. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Maghreb and Past and Present podcasts. To see related slides, please visit our website, www.themagrebpodcast.com. Other episodes are available on our website, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, visit our Facebook page, Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the Samat newsletter at www.samatmagreb.org, or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.